we just feel like we need to be doing something all the time. In fact, it was one of the first things I found about when I was in this village in India is that my experience of going to them has automatically felt very calm. And I remember thinking, if I put them into an Australian city, if I took these people from this village, I feel like they'd become incredibly anxious very quickly. Yet I felt very calm going to them. And that really stood out to me is that um, everyone was saying to me, God, how are you doing? It must be so hard sleeping on the floor. And I remember thinking, I think it would be harder for them to come to Sydney or Australia or Canberra or whatever, wherever it was. I think it'd be tougher for them. It would be so anxiety provoking with this schedule, this ridiculous schedule we put ourselves on. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. I'm very excited to be introducing today's guest, Hugh Van Kylenberg. He's a Melbourne-based teacher and founder of The Resilience Project. Hugh goes around Australia and has got an incredible program really introducing and bringing to schools mental health and how to be more resilient through gratitude, empathy and mindfulness. Fantastic program. It certainly surprised me as to how far-reaching this program has, has become in such a short period of time and really to the success of Hugh's story, how he brings information to, to young kids and I know you're going to really enjoy this episode, so enjoy. G'day, Hugh. It's great to have a fellow Aussie on the show this time. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Nish. Looking forward to this one. Look, I've been, uh, I've been really looking forward to, to chatting with you. I know that you're you know, based in Melbourne and do, do great work with the Resilience Project. And you know, there, are, there are probably many that already know about, about the uh, work that you do and you know, the, the, the many that you've spoken to and the like. But uh, for those who haven't, can I uh, ask you to talk a little bit about the, Res- the Resilience Project and how it came about um, and, and, and I suppose how you became passionate in this space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, um, I've always been very clear sort of, um, and I hope this doesn't disappoint you as, as an opening, but I've never really seen myself as an expert on mental health or I've never seen myself as an expert on resilience. So I, I guess for me, my interest um, in this topic um, came about from my sister was, my little sister was uh, 14 years old. We, we had a, a, an incredible childhood growing up. You couldn't wish or want for any more than we had it. Life was just so terrific. Um, very happy memories of childhood. We, had, uh, we have a younger brother as well. Um, when my sister was 14 years old, however, she was diagnosed um, with anorexia nervosa, um, an eating disorder, as you know, and, and, it, and it ravaged her. Um, and as anyone listening with a mental illness or, or if you know some of the mental illness, you know very well, it's not just that person who gets ravaged. Our entire, what I'm trying to say is our entire family was ravaged by this Thing. And I actually have a really distinct memory in my, in my head sitting around the dinner table one night and I was looking at my mum and dad and it was just after another argument with my mum and my sister had had about food. And I, I remember having the feeling, I remember my dad was, um, got up and went and did the dishes, but he was quite teary, that's why I left the table. And I just remember having this feeling of, oh gosh, my mum and dad aren't happy. Um, and I, there was a really unfamiliar, I mean, everyone was so happy up until my sister got sick and it was an awful feeling. And as the eldest in the family, as the oldest sibling, I felt like it was my responsibility to just make everyone be happy again. And so I really, um, I didn't know how to do it. Um, I tried every night, we'd sit down to dinner and, and I would just launch into 
the funniest stories I could think of, all these wildly embellished stories from my day, just to try and start with laughter or you know joy as opposed to what was about to come and so i'd always try and get in first before the argument started so um i i I developed a fascination with storytelling then because i could see the power it had on my mum and dad Um, but i also developed this very deep fascination with the question is what is it that makes us happy um and that's where my interest in this topic um really i suppose started i um it wasn't till and and to answer your question about how the resilience project started i i wanted to be a primary school teacher. i always wanted to be a primary school teacher i always wanted to work with young kids um and i realized um when i was applying for my first job i was applying for girls schools and i was thinking this is a strange thing to do for a 24 year old male to want to work in a girls school and i realized i just really wanted i just had this feeling like if i taught 25 girls each year, that 25 girls, I could make them not get a mental illness and then their family wouldn't. <laughs> I don't know how I planned on doing that, Nesha. I had no plan, but I just thought I'll just I'll just teach them and I'll look after their mental health and, and with, with no plan at all. But um, yeah, I enjoyed that and I loved teaching, but um, it wasn't until I was 28 years old and I was living in India, volunteering and um, and backpacking around um, the country. Well, I was backpacking around the country and I... And I um, and I decided I, I wouldn't, I was, um, what was I? Yeah, I decided to just do a couple of weeks volunteering in, a, in an underprivileged community um, as an English teacher. And I, I had two weeks turned into three and a half months for the very simple reason that I was blown away, absolutely blown away by how, how happy these people were. And we're talking about people with no running water, no electricity, no beds, everyone's sleeping on a dirt floor, yet I was absolutely floored by how happy these people were and how calm they were and and how calm I felt when I was there as well and how happy I felt there despite the fact that I'm walking half an hour every morning to go and get my water for the day and I'm lying on a dirt floor and I, there was no no internet no television none of that kind of stuff so um I decided to stay in this village more than two weeks in fact I ended up living there for three months and my aim was to work out what are these people doing that we don't seem to be doing too well in Australia and so um, it was there that I, I, I watched this and lived this, um, this life where every single day we stopped our day and we practiced. Three things stood out to me. They practiced or we practiced gratitude, empathy and mindfulness. So the three things that we stood out. And as a 28-year-old male who's a teacher who's obsessed with cricket and football back 12 years ago, those concepts were, I'd heard of them, but they were very new to me really. Like I, I don't have a psych background. I don't. So to me, I, I've... Um, yeah, I started practicing them and the impact it had on me was profound. But I remember flying back to Australia thinking, no, 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 I don't. I, it's nice that it's helped a happy person feel happier, but I, I need to know this stuff's going to help someone who's unwell. Um, and, and it wasn't so much about taking this to my sister and going, right, I can fix her. It was more, I just want people to know this. This is going to make everyone feel happy. I want people to know this. And, um, but unsure if it would help someone who's really struggling. I went back to uni, did my postgrad studies, and all I did for that my post-grad studies was look at the research that sat behind gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. And I was, I was blown away to discover there is many, many years of research screaming at us that this stuff helps you to feel happier and it improves your mental health. It doesn't completely safeguard you from mental ill health. It doesn't, um, it doesn't completely fix you like that. It's not the silver bullet, but it does help you to feel happier, experience more positive emotion. Um, and this is a very, very long que- uh, answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but that essentially is where I, I suppose how the resilience project started because I discovered these three things that I thought weren't being taught in schools. I 
I'd been in schools for about, uh, I came back and actually taught again. I taught secondary school kids, uh, disengaged adolescents, kids who, who traditional school just wasn't working for them for, for a variety of reasons. I had kids who had been kicked out of multiple schools. I had kids with disabilities. I had kids that just hated where the school they're in. And, and I, it wasn't in the curriculum, but I wove gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness into the curriculum that was handed to me. Um, and I, I had a, extraordinary impact on these 25 adolescents who I felt were quite lost when we first, the first meeting we had sitting down as this class, I remember thinking, gosh, this would be a long year, but um, I think it could be a really special one. And um, after a couple of years in this program, seeing the impact it had on these, these secondary school kids, a lot of them who were struggling in their lives, um, I thought, no, I think more people need to know about this stuff. So I very naively and and um, probably quite stupidly at the time, I quit my teaching job and decided to start this thing. I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know it was called the Resilience Project. I just wanted to go and do talks at schools um, and no one wanted to know me. No one wanted to talk to me. No one wanted to have me at their school. Uh, I, um, a couple of years where I was pretty much broke while well, I was very, when I say pretty much, I mean extremely broke. Um, and um, yeah, and then it, started, it just slowly gradually started to, to build momentum and now, 10 years later, we, we um, this amazing position, we've got 200,000 kids around the country doing our curriculum every single day. Um, we have um, worked with over, well, I've personally worked over 1,500 schools around the country now. And um, yeah, it's an extraordinary position to be in. And I, I um, yeah, speak about gratitude. I feel very grateful. My job is to, I suppose, to, to sort of um, tie it all together or join the dots. My job is to do what I did around the dinner table is tell stories that hopefully help people to feel happier. You talk a little bit about how you brought gratitude, empathy and mindfulness into that learning environment with those disengaged kids. What, what, what are the sorts of things that you did? Obviously, this isn't a curriculum based, but, but you kind of were able to inject that flavor or you know, in, inject those principles. What, what sort of things did, did you do as a teacher? Yeah, so we, we had a, I mean, the group I had were a really sporty group of kids. They loved their sport as a generalization. It was, it was um, we sort of used sport in the curriculum. So I tried to, work out how I could involve sport, these three, gratitude, empathy, mindfulness, and I suppose the fact that these kids really hated traditional schooling. So it was about presenting them in very different ways. So um, I would, um, every single morning before before class started, um, I exercise, I mean, everyone knows how important exercise is for our mental health, but I tried very hard to weave them all in together. So the first thing we did before school started, they'd come into the classroom and there were two big ovals next to the classroom we had. Um, and so I'd say, and it was about um, all up, I think, all the way around the oval. It was about two kilometres if you went around the two ovals, the big path around the two ovals. So um, I would say before class, before you do any work, you need to walk around the two ovals or the path around the two ovals. And in that walk, it took about 10 minutes. I said, I just want you to think about what you can hear. That's it. I don't want you're not talking to anyone, you don't have music on, you don't, I just want you to pay attention to what you can hear. Um, and at first it was, um, they sort of, it took a while for them to, first couple of months they would sort of muck around a bit or they'd, they'd be chatting and I'd say, no, no, I just want you to have this time where you, and I explained why I wanted them to do it. I talked about how the meditation we did in India was really massive for me. I wanted them to experience it, but I knew they wouldn't sit still um, like the kids in India did. So I said, it's, um, it's just a walk. And so they would do that. And I'd say, when you get back, just write down 10 different things you heard. Um, and so that was kind of 
practicing mindfulness, I, I guess, paying attention to what's happening as it's happening. And I know it's a very basic version of it, a very watered down version of it, but for these kids, it, it seemed to really, um, it, it really seemed to work. Um, we had a... Um, That's brilliant, by the way, because how, how many kids do we, do we genuinely know who have 10 minutes to themselves where all they're doing is walking and, uh, you know, being uh, with themselves, you know, and, and obviously yeah. with those five senses and to just focus on one, you know, what can you hear? Unfortunately, it's a very rare experience these days. You know, people, people just don't do that. Well, we don't. And we, we are, um, you know, we've got our phones on us, so we won't, we won't be by ourselves. We want to listen to a podcast or, which is a great thing to do, by the way. Um, or we want to, <laughs> careful, careful, we want to, careful what you say. <laughs> stop listening to everyone now. Go and, walk, go and walk and listen to it. Pay attention to it. No, we, uh, I just feel like we just feel like we need to be doing something all the time. In fact, it was one of the first things I found about when I was in this village in India is that my experience of going to them has automatically felt very calm. And I remember thinking, if I put them into a, an Australian city, if I took these people from this village, I feel like they'd become incredibly anxious very quickly. Yet I felt very calm going to them. And that really stood out to me is that um, everyone was saying to me, God, how are you doing? It must be so hard sleeping on the floor. And I remember thinking... I think it would be harder for them to come to Sydney or Australia or Canberra or whatever, wherever it was. I think it'd be tougher for them. It would be so anxiety provoking with this schedule, this ridiculous schedule we put ourselves on. So, um, well, this is yeah, why so- I love the, 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 the beach. You sit there and all you, you, you do is lay, lay around, kind of watch the, the waves roll in, make some sandcastles with the kids. There's nothing to do really. Um, I love camping. You know, all you're doing is walking around, you know, just looking at stuff, picking stuff up, you know, making a little fire. Let's do make a, a meal, walk down to the beach again, rinse, repeat. There, 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 there's not much going on yet. Uh, it's so rich. It's, it's, it's so true. And that's because it's funny that feeling you get after the beach, you feel so, I don't know. It's a, it's a great feeling. And I, I think you're right. I think it's because, you're not under pressure to get stuff done and do stuff and do this. You are very present, um, whether it's with the water or the sand or the people with you. It's a very, um, yeah, it's, it's a really good example, I, I think. The, one of the other ones I, I found um, for these kids um, in the morning, there, was two, there were two boys there who just couldn't, I gave them two months. I said, I'm going to give you two months to do this. And I just couldn't do it after two months. And they were such tactile, it almost made them feel uncomfortable that they weren't, um, achieving something or that they just had to switch everything off to do one thing. So I ended up changing it for them. I said, I just want you to walk a lap of this oval and I want you to do it so that you arrive back to this very starting point in exactly 500 steps. And they went, right, okay. And it was such a direct task and direct instruction. Yeah, we can do that. And so every morning, these two boys would measure out their steps, not saying anything, and try and get back on exactly the 500th step, or I'd give them a different amount of steps every day. And so, again, it's not a deep form of meditation. It's not your classic form of meditation, but all I could concentrate was on was the length of their strides instead of and where they were in relation to the oval and the, the circle. And, and and I some people might argue that's not mindfulness, but for me, it was it was the best I could do with these two boys to get them to to just switch off all other thoughts and just pay attention to what's happening right now. 
Hugh, I would say very elegant because that, that, that's what teaching is about, taking a concept, even the, the, the smallest part of it and, and, and being able to utilise that. The truth is you know, m- most of us, even those you know, that, that, that are very fortunate and, and you know, like meditating in, in, in terms of the concept, most of us don't do it. You know, we, 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 yeah. We'll do it for, a, for, for a, you know, a week or three days or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, it's rubbish. Most most people don't do it because uh, it's hard. It's 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 yeah. it's unpleasant. Like you know, like your kids. Yeah, it's unpleasant to go out and and, and just be with your own thoughts, uh, walking around, you know, listening. You know, uh, adults are the same. You know, I, I, I know very very few people who actually go out and and do formal meditation regularly. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of the informal sort of uh, meditation, appreciation, gratitude, you know, oh, that's, kind of like that's so good. Your attention. So I'd say brilliant, that makes, brilliant, brilliant, mate. That makes me feel better. That makes me feel better. <laughs> we did, um, we did uh, the, the uh, you'll love the empathy one. I just had this thing called the roll. We called it rack, rolling, a rolling act of kindness. And it was that I would start it with someone. I did something kind for one of the students um, I think I, um, what would I do? Oh, that's right. I just knew the music that he loved. I, he just loved this um, type of music that not many people loved. And so I, as a much younger man, listened to the same type of music. And so I had this um, CD from years back. And so I actually went back and found it and burnt it all and then gave it to him in a USB and said, here's some of my favourites of all time. I reckon you're going to love these. And I said, but like I've just done something nice for you in the next week. I want you to do something nice to someone else in the class. I want you to take time doing it. And it was a secret who was, who had the act of kindness on them, but they would do it. Um, and we had um, 25 kids in the class. I oh, know, sorry, 20 or 28 students. Um, and I think when you take out all the school holidays, all that kind of stuff, I think we had around, I think it was around 40 or 38 weeks in the school. So pretty much every week someone was going to do something for someone else and it was a secret. And when it happened for that person, um, they would keep it quiet and then they'd do something for someone else and you weren't doing it for credit from the rest of the group. Um, and so it took a while to get going, but when, once the majority of students had experienced what it was like to have something done for you, they started suggesting stuff to me that we could do for... There, there, there's a student in our class um, with cerebral palsy. Uh, he had a condition called... And I've never known the pronunciation. It's either hydrocephalus or hydrocephalus. It's too much fluid on the brain. And so he was really limited uh, in mental and physical disability, but he loved football so much. He was just, his, he was obsessed with footy, but he couldn't really play properly because of his physical disability. But we used to, Friday afternoon, we'd play a game of football on the Oval and split the class into two and we'd play those games and he would sort of commentate or watch. And one of the guys came up to me and said, oh, someone did an act of kindness for me this week. That's just got me really fired up about this why don't we do the whole class without him knowing, why don't we do an act of kindness for this kid with cerebral palsy? Let's get him to play at full forward and let's orchestrate in the game where he can kick six goals and he will never know we've done this. Like, so I said to him, you're going to play today. And he said, oh, are you sure? I said, yeah, you're playing. And sure enough, the students made sure the ball got to him and he got to pick it up and he kicked six goals. He's carry on for the next month. He walked around with his chest out, talking about his six goals every day, rubbing into people. Like he's giving people shit about how he kicked goals on them. And, and it was the most, it was, it was one, I was, I was nearly brought to tears driving home that night just because uh, he was, he was he, as I left school, everyone was sitting around, he was recounting his goals for everyone. He was saying, I heard him say, well, the fourth one, I didn't think I was going to kick the fourth one, but I just managed to bend it around the corner and slot it through. <laughs> just, and just everyone, just made everyone so happy. So we had this rolling act of kindness, which I thought was, 
really good. I also modeled, I also modeled a lot. I mean, there was a powerful way to influence someone's behaviors to model. So I, there's a lot of ego and bravado in that class. And I tried very hard to, um, you know, I was a good, I was, I was 28. I was playing a lot of sport at the time. So I think they looked up to me just by virtue of my age and the fact I played a lot of sport. And so I, knowing that they did, I, I went very hard the other way. No ego, no bravado, just like kindness and love, kindness and love. And, and um, I don't know if it had a big impact on them, but modeling is another powerful way. And the gratitude stuff, um, the way I taught gratitude in that class was we, um, I mean, the, 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 the most popular research on gratitude is, is that you, um, the way to practice it is to ask three things that went well for you every day, record that. But I knew the kids weren't going to sit down with a journal every night and write down three things that went well. Um, so I had this board and it was just called WWW up on the board. And, um, and the kids loved walking around. They hated sitting still when we were doing work. So, and I had post-it notes up on the, on the table. And I just said to them, if ever anything goes well for you during the day, just go and write it, jump up, get out of your seat, go and write on the post-it note, stick it on the board. And I said, we may not read them out at the end of the day. No one's going to know what you wrote. It's anonymous, but just go and write it there. And so they'd be getting up all the time and writing on those post-it notes and sticking it on the board. And I'd take photos at the end of each day because I was quite moved by how keen they were to do it. Uh, but then at the end of the day, um, I was on Thursday, uh, Wednesdays and Fridays, because it took up a bit of time, I'd sit, at, I'd sit at, the, at the door before they left. Then I weren't allowed to leave until they told me three things went well for them. Um, on that day or during that week or um, so yeah I just uh, it's a I mean every group's different but for me that seemed to work um, and because I love their sport often the way I address them I was like a coach sort of like it wasn't like a teacher oh yeah yeah and so coaches are very positive and re reaffirming so I there's a lot of chat about um, I love watching you do this I love watching you do that I love how you and I think that is a lot of sort of the three things intertwined I think I hope <laughs> One of the things that jumps out at, at me is the consistency in which you describe this was occurring so that it wasn't just an idea, it was the application, you know, that, that this was being implemented and became part of the classroom, that, that this is something that could be done or, and, and was being done on a daily basis for it to be integrated into a young person's life uh, that, that that that's what sounds to me as most impressive you know it's not just a a one-off it's it, it's embodying this whole experience of whether it is you know being you know that that rolling rolling act of kindness it, it is being embodied all the time and therefore your mind thinks that way and therefore you are you know, just by, by virtue of that, more empathic and, 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 and compassionate towards others. Um, it, it, it sounds like there's a consistency approach that, that makes this awfully powerful. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I, I actually, it's funny, reflecting on the Resilience Project and the journey it's been through over 10 years, I remember about three or four years in having this realisation that I was doing one-off presentations to kids at schools. And whilst I felt they were powerful and I felt that kids enjoy them, I thought, but with the kids I worked with when I was their teacher, it was the whole year round. It was every day. And I was thinking, so how do I expect to have an impact, a genuine impact on these school communities if I'm just doing a one-off talk and then leaving? Um, and so that's when we developed our curriculum because I thought, no, the teachers need to be teaching this much in the same way I was every day. So that was the, the curriculum, which you can see conveniently placed on my bookshelf behind me. Uh, <laughs> um, that's, that, that's what we developed um, back in 2000 and 
2015, I think it was, 2015, 2016, that's what we started developing then because I, exactly like you said, Nesha, I felt like it needed to be an ongoing, it needed to be consistent. So yeah, I totally agree. How did you crack the code? I know a lot of people are so passionate about, you know, working with kids and making a, you know, a difference in that space, yet, you know, it's almost impossible to get into schools these days. You know, mm. you, you know, the Department of Education doesn't work with individuals at, at that level. Each school, mm. you know, has to kind of decide themselves and, and, and the like. It's, it's something that uh, I, I tip my hat off to you and, and say, wow, what, what, what incredible work you've done. How, how did you go about going from, you know, being a teacher with, 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 with 28 kids, you know, in, in that year to, you know, quitting and throwing two years behind this where you're you know, trying to do it on a day-by-day day day basis wherever you can with whatever school will pick this up to, to now, you know, an organisation that, that uh, you know, clearly has a curriculum and, and, and you know, schools around, you know, Australia and I believe the other places as well have picked it up and, and run with it. Um. It's a good question because it is really, really hard to get into schools. I, um, I, I think so. I, for me, it's the power of storytelling. So I have watched a lot of other presenters who, who have a great message and a great passion. Um, and because often when you go and do these talks, it's part of a day. So you'll sit and wait for the person to finish before you or, or you'll, someone will be speaking after you. So I do watch other people do it and I, who have a great message and, and terrific content, but I think what's worked for us is storytelling. So we all love stories. You know, we, we, um, the podcasts I always tune into the ones where people are sort of, you're listening to a story. So we tell stories and the message behind gratitude, empathy and mindfulness, it's kind of like it's there, but you only realize sort of at the end, you've just been listening to these stories, hopefully. And I think teachers love listening to the stories. Um, the, I, I suppose yeah, it's, I'm just trying to, I'm thinking on a spot here, but I, I think I, I find the stories are most engaging. People love listening to the teachers do. And then what we found was the teachers were our best source of um, uh, marketing because they'd go and tell teachers at other schools and say, we just had this guy come and speak today. Um, uh, Humour is the other thing that we, I hope we use myself and Martin, the other main presenter. I know that we we want to have kids roaring with laughter before we even start talking about mental health. If we don't mention the word mental health really, but um, laughter is the most powerful tool I reckon to, I, I tell a story. So for my, for, 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 so I've got four different, five different presentations. The first one is prep or foundation to grade two. I spend 10 minutes, I start 10 minutes telling stories about my son um, not sleeping, my son's issues with nappies, my son's um, uh, dancing when he's nude in the bath. Um, I tell them stories about, I show them a video when my son, when he was only three weeks old, was sucking my nose trying to get milk. Um, <laughs> and, and I won't start talking about the concepts of gratitude, empathy, mindfulness until the kids have been genuinely, you know, in stitches for 10 minutes. And then because they just, they just want more, they just want more from you. Um, and then I'll go, um, year 10, 11, 12, um, at the other end of the spectrum, I'll tell a story 
Uh, it was just a, a really odd point of time to get it now. It takes a while to, to, to deliver and it probably won't have the same impact as a one-on-one conversation. But just a story about when I met um, famous Australian comedian Hamish Blake um, in a cafe. I, I was, um, this is going back, well, I actually know him now, but but many years ago I didn't. And I um, I saw him and I've always been in awe of Hamish Blake. He's one of my favourite, you know, comedians or, or celebrities in Australia. And I I just thought, this is my chance. I'm going to go and introduce, I'm going to go and say good out. I'm going to go and meet him. Um, and I went over to him and I completely stuffed it up. I got so nervous. My voice did that high-pitched squeak thing. I, no words came out. I couldn't think of anything to say. I, I just did this. He looked at me and I went, <laughs> and just nothing came, nothing came out. Uh, and then I went to sit down again and I think he sensed my disappointment and he said, uh, he said, sorry, mate, do you, he called out really loud. He said, do you want to do a high five or something? And I said, I'd love to do a high five. And I walked back to him and I got, I thought, no, I'll do a fist pump because that, that's really cool. I'll do a fist pump and move. But he went to do, he did say a high five. So he did in slow motion, it kind of looked, and I don't know if people will be able to see this, but he had his hand out for high five. I had my fist, I was going in for a fist pump. And at the last minute we both swapped because we saw the other person <laughs> was going to do. And I sort of, so he ended up punching my hand and then I grabbed his hand and started shaking it because I just got so nervous. <laughs> so I started shaking his fist and he, he goes, mate, can I get my fist back? Anyway, so I opened with that. And that story takes 10 minutes to tell properly. And I, that's how I opened to year 10 and 11s and 12s. Year 7s, 8s and 9s, um, I tell them stories about when I got in trouble at school because the 7s, 8s and 9s kids don't want to be there or, or they do, but they don't want people to know they want to be there. So I tell them some really funny stories about when I got in trouble as a kid, um, which was pretty rare if I'm being honest, but I just try and think of something that will resonate with them. And it's quite funny around I wanted to be a bad boy, but I wasn't really, but I tried to be. And, and but So the first 10 minutes of every presentation is just... I, 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 I won't say 10 minutes. I will not start trying to deliver my message to these kids unless they've been howling with laughter. Because when they've been howling with laughter, they want more. They're in. Um, and the teachers love that. Uh, the teachers love having a laugh as well. Um, and then what underpins it is a very, very important message about their about their mental health uh, and how... Um, and then, well, I go straight from that to talking about my sister's battle with um, with anorexia. And I put up a photo where you can see how sick she really was. And it's kind of like this, the kids go, this is so funny. And then they go, oh my God, this is, this is deep or this is heavy. And they have complete respect for the fact that you've eased them into, I suppose, what is going to be a pretty challenging topic. But then it's sort of like a roller coaster up and down. So it's a really sad story about my sister. People can get quite teary, but then I'll pick him back up again straight away. And it's like, we're laughing again. Really funny story about my dad um, when we were growing up, um, when we were trying to understand my sister's mental illness but then a really dark story about her in hospital, then up again. And then we just finished with all the strategies. And then, and I, I think I'm trying to answer your question because it, it's such a good question. And it's hard for me to answer why we've managed to be so successful in schools. But I, as I'm speaking, I just think it's the style of presentation. It's like a show that the kids just love coming to, the parents love coming to, the teachers love coming to. And, and having spent a decade in schools, I get what schools need and what works in schools. And, um, and how you should be speaking to teachers, how you should speak to kids. And I don't know, I think it's all sort of come together um, and, it, and it worked quite well, really. I don't know. I, I, I hope I've answered that question, but I don't, <laughs> I don't really know. No, it makes a lot of sense. It, it, it's uh, at its core, the engagement level is so mm-hmm. intense. Yes, I think that's it. I think that's what I've tried to say in ten yeah. minutes. <laughs> it's, it's engaging. <laughs> no, when I, when, when I think about it from a, from a, um, 
therapeutic level, one of the one of the most powerful things that we can we can offer as as, as psychologists, and then I, I would say the exact same thing happens for in, in a teaching context, is uh, you know the quality of the emotion that mm. is captured. Mm. And stories yeah, tell an amazing, you know, they 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 can pull you in so that you can viscerally experience it. Whether it's through laughter, where you become you know very open and and uh, you know are seeking more and excited, uh, or whether it's through you know great angst and pain and and, and hardship, like you know seeing someone who, you know, maybe a photo of your sister that's uh, you know at, at, at you know. I'm assuming, you know, at a, at a particular low, you know, is a very visual representation of, you know, um, pain and, and hurt and suffering and, and to, to actually sit with that feeling um, in an open way is a big deal. You know, that, that, that's a bit of a game changer. Yeah. So I think, I think you're spot on. I think the engagement, emotionally engaging, I think, if you ask me that question again, I'd say we do emotionally engaging presentations and I could have answered a lot quicker for you, but I was literally just trying to work it out in my head as we were speaking, but I think, I think it's the levels of emotional engagement. Yeah. And what's the, uh, what's the, um, uh, program that you guys offer, you know, how, how does it work? I, I know that there's different cohorts, whether it's, you know, as you say, the, you know, younger or, you know, adolescents or older. And I know that you've got, you know, uh, parents even, um, yeah. uh, some, some upcoming sort of programs as well. What, how, how does the program work? Uh, obviously what, what, what I love about it and what's kind of, you know, really jump out at, at me, it's, it's a project. You know, the, this mm-hmm. isn't a, you know, a one-off, uh, the, the, yeah. this isn't a, a day or one interesting story. This is a project that, that, has these, you know, three pillars of gratitude, empathy, and 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 mindfulness. Um, how does the project look in these look in these different, um, uh, uh, I suppose, offerings? Yeah. So it's funny. We um, for many years it was me bending to whatever the schools wanted. The schools would say, "No, we just want to talk for our grade sixes." Um, yeah, that's all we need. And I go, "No worries." And then some schools would say. Oh no, we just we just need like you to come and speak. So we want you to just run a whole day workshop with our grade four, fives, and sixes, or we need a seminar for your elevens. And and I'd sort of I'd say, yeah, I'm happy to do that because I'm trying to start the business. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking this one-off stops just not where it's got to be. And so I remember thinking one day I'd love to be able to present the way I want to do it, and then and then schools either want you or they don't, and that's fine. And we're lucky now. 10 years into the project to be able to, we have a long waiting list of schools who want to work with us. I think it's now, oh, I can't remember what it is, but I think we've got about 46 schools in the waiting list for next year um, already, which is really nice. But the, if you want to work with us, the, the program is this, before we even step set foot in your school, every single child will do a thing called the Resilient Youth Survey, which is a survey developed um, by psychologists, which will measure how resilient the kids are, it'll give you a mental health profile. So you find out year by year, um, gender, all the different demographics you want to break it down to, you basically get a profile on your school. What, what's the mental health? So we could tell you in um, one of the second, I was looking at the data on one of the schools we're working with yesterday that um, uh, 70% of the of the girls in year 11 have a very low opinion of themselves or, or um uh, uh, in, this, in that same school, a really sad statistic: and sixty-two percent of the boys in year seven don't have any hope. They don't experience any hope in their life. Um, 
So we can break down the school. So before we go to school, we know exactly what's happening in every year level. Um, we then uh, kick it off with a, because maybe not now, maybe it's, it's we've got a reasonable reputation, I think, but certainly not too long ago when teachers heard someone was coming in to talk about resilience to their school, they'd go, oh God, not another one of these bloody things. Who's this person to tell me how to teach? I don't need to listen to this person. So the teachers are walking with their laptops and they'll start, you'll introduced and they're just working. They're not even listening. And so it's our job in that we've got 90 minutes with them to kick off the year um, where the job of that presentation is to emotionally engage the teachers onto why this is such an important journey to go on and why you don't, you may not have got into teaching because you want to help kids with their mental health, but now it is, you'd be derelict in your duties not to jump on board this stuff. Like the kids need this more than anything right now. Um, and all teachers get it deep down. It can take a while to wrestle some of them around, but majority of them will get it pretty quickly. Um, so then there's... Because so even the teachers. teachers, the adults just get, you know, life gets gets in the way, we get bruised and battered and we kind of just totally. roll into work, do our thing and, and you know, I, I suppose probably model not, not such great, hopefulness either for, 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 for the kids versus, you know, leading um, totally. you know, the, 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 the school forward and, and embracing it and being enthusiastic, you know, is a game changer. Totally. Because totally. that's I mean, what you, you, you were you'll... doing, you know, on, on a day-to-day with your kids, uh, with your 28 kids, every day you'd walk in with enthusiasm and, and, and kind of continue to model and ask this on a, on a, on a daily you know, basis. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's an amazing social experience to walk into a school staff room to do a a PD to watch certain teachers come and sit up the front. Hey, how are you going? Looking forward to this. What's the topic? What are we doing? Welcome to the school. And then have other teachers wondering at the very last minute, get their laptop open, not even look at you, just start typing and not even acknowledge that you're in the room. And then I've got ways to get them on board. Like I've got, I've, I've got developed strategies to get them on board pretty quickly, but, um, and just think, my gosh, those people in the back of the room who aren't even making eye contact with a guest and who aren't even, who are typing while they're talking they're in charge of our kids and that really scares me because they wouldn't let their kids do it yet it's okay for them and that really that really early on in i was quite gung-ho i'd just say i'd walk over and close their laptops but that's a really arrogant way of doing it and that doesn't get people on board it doesn't get make them go yeah or it doesn't like it works because they, they they listen to you but it doesn't make them go oh gosh i want to listen to what this guy's got to say um i've developed other more gentle strategies to get them on board now you got to um, find some nuances. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't just go around closing laptops. <laughs> One day a guy was, um, was a young male and he was just sitting off to the side and he was just typing the whole time. And I walked over and closed his laptop on his fingers while I was talking. And he said, I'm taking notes. And he opened up his screen and had these like beautiful notes written. About <laughs> and, oh, I'm so sorry, mate. And so I've never done that since. But um, So yeah, so that's, so, um, so that's the second step is a teacher PD. So 90 minutes to get the teachers on board. Then we do the student presentations um, and that is we break the school into, um, if it's a primary school, it's prep to grade three and then grade four to grade six. If it's a secondary school, it's seven to nine and then 10 to 12. And we do an hour presentation to them to get them really excited about it. We talk about the AFL footballers who do this program, the NRL footballers, the Australian netballers, Australian tennis players that do it. We just to get them a little bit like, this is not just the school stuff. This is like, like your heroes are doing this stuff. Then we present them with their curriculum. It's, it's curriculum. We call it a journal, but it's, it is curriculum. It's like a textbook. Sure. Uh, and then the next week, another one of my staff, uh, either Belinda or Anthony, who are both brilliant, brilliant educators, 
they'll go in and they'll teach the teachers in the staff paddy how to teach the curriculum. Um, and then we have the parent night a couple of weeks later because the kids go home and talk about the presentations. The parents come in, we, we, we talk to the parents about it. Um, they'll do the, then they'll do the curriculum for the entire year. They get sent videos throughout the year. Uh, there's digital content as well to keep them engaged in it. Um, end of the year, they'll do the resilient youth survey again, um, just so we can see what's happened um, throughout the year. Um, yeah, and that's an ongoing project. So, so, so that is our, that's what we offer schools. That's, we, we don't go and do one-off talks anymore. That's, it's a full program. Um, uh, and next year we're, uh, well, sorry, no, this year we, we trialled our digital program, which is instead of us going into talk, it's digital content that, that they can watch videos of us, little snippets. It's not us doing a presentation. It's a videographer has, has turned it into like a, almost like a TV show. And, and the reason we've done that is because we're getting, you know, we have this ridiculously long waiting list. This year we had 60 schools on the waiting list and schools way out in regional parts of Australia that the two of us, we just couldn't get to all the schools. We've both got young families, me and Martin and Martin and I, and it was getting quite difficult. So we just didn't want to say no to schools. So we've created this digital content, which I think we had 30 or 40 schools trialling this year. And I think we've got 50 schools doing next year at the moment, but that is, we can have as many schools as we want doing that program. They still get the curriculum, but they get the digital content, which um, so far the feedback has been, I mean, we've got, um, what is it? We've got in far North Queensland, the, uh, the North Queensland Cowboys who are a rugby league team, um, we've partnered with them and they are, they have literally rolled this program out to, um, what is it? They had, um, uh, I, can't, I don't want to get the numbers wrong. I don't want to, over-exaggerate or so short, but I think we had um, 7,000 kids in far north Queensland accessing this digital, watching the videos every day and then doing the curriculum, which is really, really exciting that we, we don't have to actually lift it. We just click a button and then they're doing the program, so which is really cool. We, we owe the Cowboys a lot, of, um, a lot of credit for that. It's phenomenal what, 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 what this program offers because it, it goes from – you know, not only focusing on the students, which, you know, I think programs too often do, uh, but rather focusing on the teachers, focusing on the parents, you know, focusing on it being a, a program over time. Um, what an incredible model, uh, I have to say, because this, this is the only way I think we can really integrate integrate work. One of the things I'm always talking with my team here in the clinic is about continuity of care and retention of clients. Mm. Yes. And not because yeah. we need, it's got nothing to do with uh, us needing our clients to be here because we've got long waiting lists as well. Yeah. We yeah. know, and the data is very, very clear in, in psychology, the more times a client attends an appointment, uh, the better their therapeutic outcomes are and the longer they hold those therapeutic outcomes over time. So whether it's post 6, 12, 18, 24 months um, is very, very, you know, dependent on how many sessions they've had. So, uh, you know, you're just nailing every single uh, factor there uh, that the data is going out and telling us. And, and it's something that we've got to be driven, I, I think, by what the data tells us. Uh, and yeah, totally. It sounds like you're, 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 you're smashing it. Oh, thank you. It's it's um, I, well, it's funny that, that you say about like a psychologist and retention. I, every every single talk I I finish by saying, if this is if you if you if this has really struck a nerve with you, maybe you should go and talk to a professional about this. And I just talk about how what an incredible resource psychologists are, and we should all I think we should all be 
seeing psychologists and I've been saying this for many years and my wife said to me once, my wife sees a psychologist, she's got issues with OCD and anxiety and, um, and she said, when are you going to practice what you preach? I said, what do you mean? She says, you're telling everyone no matter how they feel. And I said, that's such a good point. And so I actually, um, uh, down in Melbourne, I spent, uh, I've spent the first half of this year trying to find someone who I felt really worked for me. And it was my fourth, I'd, I'd seen a psychologist. I saw her three or four times. It just didn't quite feel right. And, and, uh, but her stylist didn't seem to work for me. I saw someone else and, and, uh, you'll find this funny, but I was in the waiting room and, um, and I saw her and she came over and she grabbed the credit card facility and she didn't say hi. She said, can you just pay first before we start and just held it out. And I went, Oh my gosh. So she didn't quite work out either. But oh, I met wow. this wonderful, I know that, that might upset you hearing that, but, um, um, I met this, I've had this, met this wonderful, wonderful psychologist and I, I cannot believe, I can't even picture not having her in my life right now. Like if she said, I'm going away for six months, I'd be so distressed. I don't, I, I don't have a mental illness. I, I, um, but like everyone else, I have my insecurities, my doubts, my confusing moments and, and my down moments and having her to talk that through with and having her joining the dots I mean, the first session we had, you guys are so incredible what you do. The things that she, the dots that she had to join for me with my life, like little moments. She had me retelling moments from when I was a kid that I'd actually forgotten had happened, but for some reason chatting to her, they just came out. Um, and around, uh, it was really fascinating stuff about me and the way I am and, and, and the impact of the work that I'm doing, uh, the way it's actually, the impact it's had on me personally and how... Um, uh, it's, it's been 10 years of doing this and running around the country telling stories every day. And, and um, I've actually noticed myself becoming a little bit more reclusive socially, not as I used to be extremely outgoing, extremely love being around people, but I found myself going the other way. And I said, and she said to me, what, so what do you think that is? And I said, oh, I think I'm just worried people are a bit sick of my voice. And she said, <laughs> but she said, or, do you, or she, and then she said, um, for who, for example, and I said, oh, mum and dad, like, I'm not as outgoing as I used to be with mum and dad because I feel like they might be a bit sick of my voice. And she said, how often do your mum and dad see you? And I said, oh, once every couple of weeks. And she said, are you sick of your voice or do you think they're sick of your voice? And I went, oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really powerful. Maybe I'm a bit sick of my own voice. I don't know. So you know, having her join the dots on stuff, I just the reason I'm saying this is I think what you do is just so unbelievable. It's just an unbelievable gift to the world. And I, I encourage everyone, anyone who's listening to this, if you've been thinking about it for a while, you're not sure. And maybe you're thinking, well, I listened to a podcast from a psychologist. So that's kind of, maybe that's my, you, you've just got to go and do it. You've just got to mm -hmm. sit down, find the right person. And I go every two weeks. I, I want it to be every week, but she said, no, no, just calm down. This be every two weeks for now. Um, and I just, it is my, it's really hard sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's really challenging, but um gosh it's just it is the greatest thing i've done in a very long time and look i would also agree with you you've got to go uh, psychologist shopping i know that there's a taboo about people going out and doctor shopping for for medication this is a different this is a different set of yes. uh, circumstances you've got to find someone that you resonate with and and uh, and, and that's such an important part of, of, of the journey. It, it's not easy because it's not easy going out and you know, talking to another psychologist, telling your yep. story again. Uh, but honestly, um, you've got to find you know, someone that you can form a trust, a bond, uh, you know, uh, that, that works because you're going to be telling your, well, eventually you want to be, you know, exploring 
all of your experiences, thoughts, and and uh, you know how you're made up to to understand your own world, and obviously, you know, uh, appreciate your biases to to be able to um, you know make decisions moving forward as well. And and as you say, even those three principles of of uh, you know uh, gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness within oneself uh, is is all, you know, awfully difficult and hard. So um, yeah, totally. out of two again. Yeah, my, my um, the we, so I do a podcast with a guy called Ryan Shelton, who's a who's a reasonably well known, um, well, very well known Australian comedian, and he, I, our journey of becoming friends, and then me saying to him, I think you should see a psychologist, and I've got a really good one. You should see, um, not 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 the person I see was a friend of mine, um, and he said that again, he's in a pretty good place mentally, but he said that he treats his psychologist. He said, it's like a one-on-one lecture about psychology. And I'm not, and he said, uh, but on the subject. Um, and he said, it's fascinating. Like he said, I'm interested in psychology, but when I'm the subject it's even more fascinating. And he said, on the days that I think I've got nothing to talk about today, I'm actually pretty good. He said, they're the days where we get stuck into some really, really good, meaningful stuff. And I've seen the difference in him in the, in the last six months of seeing a psychologist he is a totally different person. And he feels when he goes through moments of he's unsure or he's stressed or he's um, anxious about something, he feels okay knowing he's going to see his psych that week or the next week. He's going, well, it's okay. I've got, I can go and sort this out. I can go and work through this. And I think that's, it's kind of like, I feel like it's like if you're into sport or into fitness and you get injured, but you know, you get a physio appointment already booked a week later, you go, that's right. The physio can sort it out for me. It's kind of like, the same thing but i think emotionally we get injured a lot more than we do physically you know little things happen to us throughout the day or and we just we don't know what to make of it it's too complicated and we push especially men we just go no i don't want to deal with that we've i've been brought up to to i just i'll just i'll just i'll bury it but you get a psychologist to to sort of dig it up with you it's just incredible and there's also something I think very fascinating. Obviously, I'm wildly biased because you know uh, <laughs> I, I think what we do is pretty special. Um, but but where 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 do you find a place where there is you know 100% unconditional positive regard and the focus oh. is purely on you and and not not in a never in a critical way, but in a in a curious way to try and understand and pick it apart and, 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 and do it with, with, with real genuine, you know, compassion and kindness. We don't get that. We don't get that from anywhere. Um, and that's why it's a very special, um, you know, experience and service um, to, 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 to have. And, you know, once upon a time people would, try and do that with, uh, you know, their priest and, 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 you know, talk about all those things. We don't do those things anymore. Uh, we don't, we don't have that. Um, but, you know, obviously in psychology, uh, you know, evidence-based therapy and, 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 and the like, you know, we're, we're, we're basing it on something rather than our own personal views. So yeah, totally. I think it's fairly, fairly special. I am mindful of time because I think we could talk talk forever, and I'm, I'm sure next time you come to Canberra, we'll have to organise a a, a a meet, a lunch, a coffee, or something. Oh, I'd love um, that. I'd love but that. How, how can people find out more about uh, you? Find more about the Resilience Project. You know, get in touch and the like. Um, just on that, I, I I I am so excited to be able to come to Canberra one day. I, I'm from Melbourne though, so I don't know if I'll ever be allowed in in, uh, in the ACT ever again. I feel like we are um, <laughs> not at the moment. Like you got pulled over. I got pulled around on the way to the to the studio today asking where I was going and why I was out of my suburb and I drove off thinking, God, what kind of world do we live in at the moment? It's quite scary. But 
yes, when I'm next in Canberra, I would love to. Um, there's a fantastic pub that I always go to in Canberra, and it's near Manuka Oval. Um, I forget what it's called. Over the road from the really nice hotels. Anyway, we'll, we'll yes. Is we'll, it Republic? Is it Republic? Possibly. Oh. They do great steak. You cook your own steak there. Ah, the Kingston Hotel, of course. Kingston Hotel. The Kingston yeah, Hotel. Yeah, wonderful. My all-time favourite pubs. Not that, I, not that I eat steak like that. I always get the chicken parma, but that's how I know it, that, that pub there. But, um, yeah, it's nice we'll to cook your there. own steak. It's, a, it's <laughs> interesting that these days you can go to a pub and uh, you buy a piece of meat. It's not even cooked. You cook it yourself. <laughs> and you're paying top dollar for that as well. <laughs> we, we, we can't afford to pay a chef. You're going to cook it yourself. <laughs> Here's your beer and here's your piece of meat. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess if you want to find out the Resilience Project, I think just Google us is the best way. If you want to know more about my story, um, I've given little snippets of it, but I have written a book called The Resilience. Well, do you know what? I actually, um, I've got it here with me and I don't, this is obviously, I don't think your listeners will be able to see this, but I'm holding the book up now. Um, I, did an, I did a podcast the other day for uh, someone doing a book review and I realized I actually don't know what the name of my own book is. <laughs> I don't know if it's, so it says on the front cover, the resilience project, finding happiness through gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. I don't know if the title is the resilience project and the rest is a subheading or it's called the resilience or it's called finding happiness through gratitude, empathy, mindfulness. And the resilience <laughs> project is just the brand. I actually don't know. So I could be the first author in the history of the world to not know the name of their own book, but there you go. Um, the full stories in there if you want to read more of the resilience or well, whatever it's called I don't know um, but yeah I think if, you, if, you, if you're into social media don't spend too long on social media but Instagram and Facebook we're, we're there um, plus there's the podcast as well the Imperfects um, but yeah I think that's that, that I'm sure people will be able to find us from that Hugh, thanks for coming on the show and uh, thank you for doing your incredible work as well. I know that, uh, you know, lots of students around Australia and, 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 and other places as well and teachers and parents are incredibly grateful. So, you know, appreciate your incredible work. Keep doing what you're doing and, uh, yeah, love it. Look forward to uh, catching up again and, and finding out where, where uh, the, next, the next chapter lies as well. Uh, Nesh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much and straight back at you with the work you do. I the more people that spend time with, um, with people like you the, you know, the better the world will be. So thank you. Cheers. Thanks, you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you